last week. You really missed out, and I'm sorry for you. But we have a podcast, so. But yeah, you really missed out. He talked about how important it is for us to have an accurate understanding of who God is and what that means. And he had us all ask this question of ourselves. Do I want the truth about God, or do I just want what I want? For those of you who answered that you want the truth about God, like he mentioned last week, this comes by seeing what God says about himself, right? This might force us, though, to lay down our preconceived notions um, of who we want him to be in order to see who he really is, right? So that's what we're going to do tonight. The scripture that we're going to look at is in the book of Exodus. It's in the beginning of your Bible, if you will turn there with me, if you have your Bible. Um, it's in the beginning. Um, yeah. Last week, Taylor talked about the story of Moses and how he was leading the people of Israel into a land that the Lord had promised them. And as he was taking them on this adventure, um, Moses went on to a, mount, a mountain, out to Mount Sinai, to talk with the Lord um, and to hear how the Lord wants him to build this country, right? And as he's on the mountain talking to the Lord, at the bottom of the mountain, Joshua has led the Israelites to create a golden calf to worship in the name of the Lord. The people called um, the people called the calf by the name of God, but it looked nothing like the real God, right? This is one of the most hurtful forms of idolatry. But tonight, we're going to look at what happened on the mountain with, between the Lord and Moses. So I'm going to invite my sweet friend Alexis. Biblical authors. 
the one thing that makes this passage so powerful is that it's literally God saying, Moses, this is who I am. Um, he's literally telling him about himself. And look how beautiful it is, too. Oh, it's gone. Look how beautiful it is, too, um, how he says, um, the Lord says about himself, he is a God of merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love. Like, that's so powerful. The word here for love is a Hebrew word, hesed. I heard Lydia Land likes this word. Where are you at? Do you like this word? Why do you like this word? That's so cool. I have never met someone who's like, dude, that Hebrew word is my word. That's so cool. Anyways, so this word has two definitions. It has one, goodness, kindness, faithfulness. Two, a reproach. These are the two parts of the love of God. His goodness and his rebuke. So tonight we're going to kick the series off by talking about the most well-known attribute of God and equally probably the most misunderstood attribute of God. And that's the love of God. My hope for tonight is to give clarity about the love of God and hopefully we can all leave with a better understanding and a better passion for him. So for those of you who don't know me, Sarah choose me a little bit. I'm Shannon Collins. I'm not nearly as cool as she thinks I am. Um, and I'm on staff with Chi Alpha, which is as cool as you think it is. Um, <laughs> the Lord radically changed my life in high school. Um, and then I had the privilege of coming to college at NMSU um, and being a part of. Oh, that was so dangerous. Like, now I'm looking for some of your Aggies, and they're like, Robin, the graduate, was like, yeah. Let's work on our school spirit. Um, but, so, I got to be part of this community, right? Um, I'm married to the cute guy in the back. Um, I get to call him cute. You don't. Um, we've been married for, sorry, I think it's stick here. Um, we've been married for almost three years. Um, one of the beautiful things about marriage, though, is that you take two different people, two different personalities, and you build one life. Um, and it's weird. Um, for Anthony and I, we've learned a lot. One thing we've learned is that we kind of miscommunicate sometimes. Um, if you're married, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and what we do is we say the same words often, but we mean two different things. And so, for example, our first marriage getaway trip, we learned that when we say vacation, we mean two different things. And so when uh, we planned a trip, we went to Redoso, we got an Airbnb, and we were super excited to celebrate our anniversary and just have a getaway and rest together, right? But throughout the trip, we quickly realized that when I say vacation, it's full of adventuring, making plans, doing things, and doing more things. But when Anthony says vacation, it's like pure hibernation in someone else's bed. Um, and, it's, and it's great. Um, and it's like planning nothing and just going with the flow. So when I would wake up and be like, let's go, let's go do this, and let's go do that. We gotta go on vacation. And he'd be like, I'm good. Um, we were saying the same thing, the same exact word even, vacation, but defining it differently. Um, similarly, this happened actually like a few weeks ago. Our friend Hobie was taking pictures for us, um, and throughout the photos, Anthony kept making all sorts of faces. Um, I think I have one. That's the best one she got the actual photo of, that she sent me the photo of, but they were weirder. Um, but I would turn to him and be like, Babe, be normal, come on. He'd be like, I am being normal. Again, two different ideas of the word normal, right? 
normal to me when taking pictures is like, stand up straight, smile nice, make the picture pretty. Normal to Anthony meant be who I am whether there's a camera there or not, which meant funny faces, right? So even though we were both using the same word, we were saying we had two different meanings for that word, and we were saying two different things, right? This is my point. To use the same words with different meanings is to say two completely different things. One of the most common statements heard in our Christian culture today, for sure, if not any culture, um, is that God is love, right? There's one biblical passage that makes this basic statement true. That's 1 John 4, 8. If you want to read about love, 1 John is like, makes your heart warm. Um, it says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. However, just like Anthony and I, to agree upon the statement isn't necessarily to agree upon the meaning of that statement. The way that John wrote this passage is actually not as a definition. It's not God equals love. It's written as a description of his character. However, if we take the statement as a definition, what we allow ourselves to do is to reverse it. Actually, although we might be saying God is love, we may actually mean love is God. In other words, rather than defining love based on, our, on who God is, we define God based on whatever idea of love we have. Does that make sense? Rather than defining love based on who God is, we define God based on our own idea of love. And when we do this, we define love based on our own preferences and ideas. Love, when defined by ourselves, becomes whatever we created it to be, whatever we want it to be. If we want love to look like a slightly obsessive relationship full of Valentine's Day chocolates and sweet dates and Cupid, that's what we create it to be. If we want love, to look like a one-night stand that has no commitment and just moves on, that's what we create it to be. If we want love to just be a good feeling, that we're always at peace with everyone, never in conflict with anyone, that's what we create, right? Love then becomes a beautifully sculpted figment of our own imagination to fit our desires, and then we worship it. Just like the Israelites sculpted a golden calf and called it by the name of the Lord, we create the Im an image of love that we like, and we call it Lord. But a God of our creation cannot help us, and cannot save us, and cannot love us, because it doesn't exist. Yeah. If we define God based on our own preconceived notions of love, we will create a God of our own imagination. We cannot define God based on our own ideas. God doesn't even leave that option open to us. He defines it himself. So, if God is love, it's really important that to understand God, we understand his definition of love, not our own, right? So what does the Bible say about love? I'm going to hit you with a few. The love of God in the Bible is perfect and eternal. If you read Psalm 136, write this down. Psalm 136, everyone will read it tonight. There are 26 verses in the whole psalm, and every single verse in that psalm ends with the phrase, His steadfast love endures forever. Yeah. So cool, right? The love of God is perfect and eternal. The love of God pursues. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. The love of God is personal. 
First John talks about that the kind of love the Father has given us is so great that we can be called children of God. <laughs> the love of God is romantic. Jesus calls the church his bride throughout most of the whole Bible. And if that's not enough, just read the book of Song of Solomon and you'll be convinced how romantic the love of God is because that's a love letter between him and his bride, the church, right? The love of God is hopeful. Lamentations 3 says, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yeah. This list goes on and on and on. If you read the Bible, like, it was hard to contain. But one attribute about the love of God that's often overlooked is that the love of God is honest. It cares more about someone's future than their feelings. We see this time and time again in the life of Jesus. Think about the Samaritan woman. She's a woman who's shunned by society. She's isolated. She lives her life for pleasure, going from one man to the next, and she's never satisfied, right? But Jesus meets her in her isolation, goes out of her way, pursues her, and then he offers her eternal life. It's beautiful. That's lovely, right? He tells her that he knows the lifestyle she's indulged in, and he calls her out of her sin. Jesus loved her in the depth of her pain, but he cared more about her future than her feelings to leave her there. Or look at the story of the lost sheep. I think I have a cute little picture, too. Um, Jesus talks about... Jesus talks about how, like a shepherd who cares for his sheep, he will lead the 99 sheep to go find the one lost one, right? He shows compassion and pursuit of his love. But how does a shepherd bring a lost sheep home? Or rather, where my LTC is at, why does a sheep wander in the first place? Yeah. It's dumb, right? So it leaves, it wanders, it's independent, it means it can live its own life, it leaves. But how does a shepherd bring a lost sheep home? First, they must acknowledge they are lost. The little dumb creature has wandered off on their own into the danger of predators and they're likely going to die, right? So the shepherd goes looking for them. But when he finds them, the sheep hasn't become smart. So the sheep doesn't just stroll back to the flock, right? So what must the shepherd do? The shepherd picks up the sheep and breaks its legs and carries it back to the safety of its home. A shepherd loves the sheep by being willing to temporarily hurt it so it can live in safety. A loving shepherd cares more about the sheep's future than its feelings. The Lord is honest about what hurts us because of how deeply he loves us. And therefore, the Lord is honest about sin. And because sin separates us from the love of God, it would be quite unloving to ignore it. We must love each other the same way. We must be honest about the sin and deception in our friend's life, for this is the nature of love. G.K. Chesterton, he's the man. Okay, if you're like books, write this down. Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. Yes. And then buy it on Amazon or something. Um, and then read it. Don't just buy it. 
Anyways, okay, G.K. Chesterton says, the way to love anything is to realize that it might be lost. What if the shepherd never called the wandering sheep lost? What if he noticed, oh, there's only 99? He's like, man, that sheep wants adventure. They're going to do their own thing. They're going to carve their own path. They're going to be independent. I will let them be, and I'll just stay here with my 99. <laughs> this shepherd is knowingly allowing the sheep who doesn't know any better to wander off into wilderness, who will likely starve or become someone else's dinner. A shepherd who isn't honest is not a loving shepherd. To be a friend who isn't honest when our friends are choosing death is not a loving friend. And this is the point. The love of God is not limited to, the, to honesty about sin and deception, but it absolutely must include it. This kind of love is radically different than the love that the culture preaches. The love defined by the culture is a love in the form of tolerance. It's become a catchphrase to all men basically saying, I love and affirm and celebrate whatever someone thinks, whatever they want to do, and whatever they believe about the world. Not only does this belief look nothing like Jesus or the God of the Bible, but it's actually simply not even loving. If I love my future child, um, and they want to sit, let's say they grow up, you know, imagine with me, and they want to sit in the middle of a highway and color in their coloring book. Yeah, I can follow the trend of tolerance. I can affirm and I can celebrate their decision regardless of the consequences. But to love them is to see that they have a perception of the road that's simply untrue, and that will inevitably lead to death. To love them is not to tolerate their choice, but to see what's best for them by caring more about their future than their feelings to tell them the truth. Does that make sense? Yeah. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that all are slaves, all who sin are slaves to sin, and that the consequence of sin is death. If this is true, it is far too serious to avoid in the name of tolerance. G.K. Chesterton says tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions. That's good. But we worship a God of convictions, not a God of tolerance. Yeah. The love of God is not and never has been tolerance, but rather the love of God is truth. But what is the cost of a love like this? We're going to look at one last passage to get a glimpse. Um, the other Bible is to Mark 10. There is a story of a rich young ruler, you might have heard it, who encountered Jesus while he was traveling. And basically what's happening here is he ran up to him and asked him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, remember the commandments, and you know, you know what to do kind of thing. And the man responds to him in verse 20, and we're going to read this. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's beautiful. That word is literally the Greek agape, which is the most powerful form of love. He loved him. 
And he looked upon him with love, and what did he do? He didn't affirm him, he didn't celebrate him, he didn't give him false hope. He wasn't mean or rude, but he simply said, this is what you must do. Go give up your greatest love, the thing you love more than anything, what you find your identity in, your wealth. Give it up and follow me. Jesus showed love to the rich young ruler by caring more about his future than his feelings. He showed love by telling him the truth. But what was the cost? The rich young ruler left sorrowful, disheartened. Jesus both hurt the rich young ruler's feelings and lost a friend and a follower at the same time. All for the sake of telling him the truth. The cost of honest love will include loss. To tell someone the hurt and the destruction of their sin and selfishness often offends people. Jesus offended many people by his constant calls for them to repent that he eventually was crucified for it. In the beginning, I read you the verse of 1 John that says God is love, right? Everyone loves that verse, but we're going to look at the following verses to see what he even means when he says that. Um, so if you continue to the next verse, he says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why is the love of God manifest, like come fully, through Jesus, taking punishment for our sins. Why can't the love of God, which is full of mercy and forgiveness and goodness, just forgive instead of having Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Before I continue, I'd like to tell you a story. I know that uh, one of the themes of last semester was the infamous cow prank wars. Got any pranksters, proud pranksters on the house? Lydia called out, shoot. Lydia is our proudest prankster. Um, once upon a time, I was a prankster. It's been a while. <laughs> and I have been in many prank wars gone wrong. One such prank war was during my sophomore year of college, and it was my first year small group meeting. I was a new. Um, we got into a prank war back and forth with a group of guys in Chi Alpha. And we did all the normal pranks, you know, pads on their cars, um, toothpaste inside Oreos, you know, like all the good stuff. Um, but when the war came to a breaking point eventually one morning, because we had all spent, my small group, we all spent the night at one of the girls' houses or apartments. And we got up really early in the morning when it was dark to do a sunrise hike. And when we left, we didn't see all our cars. Um, so we just went out, we went hiking, we got lunch, you know, came back. And we found, when we came back, that overnight, a lot of the girls' cars had actually been covered um, with anything. Um, salami, cheese, mayo, ketchup, mustard, newspaper, bread. Literally anything you can just find in your pantry, they put it on their car. The only problem with the assortment of uh, lunch they provided for us was that it had been sitting in the Las Cruces heat all day. And so when the girls washed all the stuff off their car, it peeled some of the paint off um, with it, leaving their cars damaged. The consequences is, as girls, we got upset. 
and the prank war ended. Right? That was about it. But against some college girls in our average cars, that's not that big of a deal, right? The consequences are not that bad. But what if the event had been done on like a 2021 sports car, I don't know what's cool, um, owned by like the president or someone cool, Kanye? <laughs> Be okay and righteous when we're 
equally deserving of the same eternal punishment as whoever we're burning with anger towards, because we also have committed horrible offenses against an eternal king. Does that make sense? And yet, and yet, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God sent his beautiful, lovely, good son to us. He lived a blameless life, proclaiming the truth about God. He loved the people around him with so much compassion and honesty. And he eventually was abandoned by everyone around him, betrayed by those closest to him. He allowed himself to be brutally whipped to the point where he was unrecognizable. As the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he allowed them to mock him, to give him a crown of thorns, of mockery, and to put a jeering sign over his cross. And he carried his own cross and was hung on a tree, naked, to die, alone, in front of the very people he was doing that to save. And on that cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He continued in his greatest agony to think of the, the love that he has for the very people slaughtering him. And finally, most heartbreakingly of all, Jesus cried out, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus took on himself the sin of the world, the horrific offenses of yours and of mine, and he bore it in front of all mankind, and the Holy Good Father had to turn his face. And all of this, that we, the ones rightfully deserving, of such punishment, the ones rightfully deserving that God would turn his face from us. He took on all this that we might have intimacy with God. The manifest love of God took on the wrath of God so that we could have intimacy with God. This is the greatest expression of love there has ever been and there will ever be. I'm going to ask Justin to, to come back up this um, C.S. Lewis, another OBG, um, old dead guy, says, but the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we should be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us and at whatever cost the love of God is so good that he was willing to take the greatest cost upon himself that we might just be offered intimacy with him. We have the privilege to be children of God, to be in intimate relationship with God, a love that's perfect and eternal and romantic and hopeful and personal and honest. This is the greatest privilege in the world.
If we choose, which we can, to only see half of the love of God, or a distortion of the truth, we are choosing to believe a lie. God's love is laid out for us. For us to redefine things, to remove the reality of sin, or the coexistence of his love with his wrath, or to only share half the truth with people, is for us to not accurately depict his love. We have the ability to reject his offer, to continue to live for ourselves, by ourselves, with our imaginary gods who aren't even real and who will fail us, and reject the love of God. Or we can choose to accept this wonderful offer, repent of our sins, turn away from them, return to him, and submit our lives to him fully and receive the full love of God. And this choice is yours, and it's yours alone. The only love that lasts forever is the love of God. And the only love that can save is the love of God. Um, as Justin plays, we're going to do a worship song, and I'd like to give you this time to reflect on the ways that you have viewed God um, or proclaimed God and his love wrongly. If you came in with the idea that God is an angry God um, and that there is no goodness, I really pray that you see the beauty and the goodness and the wonderful heart of, of God. And I ask that you come before him and you share your heart with him you humble yourself, and you ask God to show you his goodness. And if you came in with the idea that God's love is tolerance, and he has no anger, I pray that you see that the beauty of God's goodness is only amplified in the power of God's righteousness. I pray that you spend this time humbling yourself um, in your heart and repenting of how you find him wrongly in your own way, and ask God to give you a more full view of his heart. Once again, I'll ask what Taylor asked. Do you want the truth about God, or do you just want what you want? And once we have repented and gotten right with the Lord about how we viewed him wrongly, I want us to come together and praise our good God. We're going to worship him, for the love he has lavished on us is so mighty that while we are still sinners, you might, you might be called daughters and sons of God. Does that sound good? All right, I'm going to pray, and then we'll finish. Jesus, you are so mighty, God. You are so good, Thank you, Jesus, that you would be willing to take the greatest punishment there ever was, that little people like me can know you, God, can love you, God, can be loved fully by you, God. Lord Jesus, we have seen you wrongly, God. Lord, we have made gods of our imagination that make us feel comfortable, Lord, but you desire to show us who you really are, God. May we give us up our false ideas of your love tonight, Jesus, and have a more clear understanding of how deep and wide and beautiful your love is, Jesus. Lord, help us to submit to you, Jesus. Help us to love you, God. You are worthy, Jesus. And you are so much greater than we are or than we could ever imagine. Love you, Jesus.